Good to see each of you. If you are a guest, again, we welcome you. It does encourage us that you're here. If you would, this will not be our text tonight, but it will be where we begin in making a few comments about parables. If you will be turning to 1 Corinthians, 1 Samuel, the 12th chapter. 1 Samuel, the 12th. Let me get this right. Let's turn to 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter. Like I said, we're going to make a few comments on this that uh, in just a few minutes that actually came to my mind when Donna Crisp and I were walking out of the hall uh, out of Bible class this morning, and she said some things after a whole class full of, of wonderful study and discussion of parables that, that really uh, provoked my thinking, and, and I just wanted to follow up on some of those things that really then will set the groundwork for tonight's study also. It's great to see our young people back and to know that they had a wonderful retreat this weekend. It's good to be a part of a congregation that supports the growth of our young people and offers so many opportunities for them to be involved and to serve and to grow. And it was wonderful. Saturday night, Matt Collins came back from Fried Hardeman. Remember, Matt is majoring in Bible, and he's a sophomore this year, and he came back and did a tremendous job uh, speaking Saturday night. And we are so thankful for all of our young people and for them finding their place in God's body and using their life. And we are thankful for the work that is coming off the ground in a wonderful way with the Hispanic worship service that takes place on Thursday evenings. And be sure and continue to help us get the word out with that. Uh, There were four adults in worship service this past Thursday. Christy and Elias go out several evenings a week and conduct Bible studies and invite individuals. And it is wonderful to see the good in such a short time that is already taking place. I want to encourage you, if you do not have that great work as a part of your regular prayers, make a mental note of it now. And let's make sure that we ask God for what we want and His blessings in this. And let's look forward to spending an eternity with some people Uh, that are in our community because of this great work that is beginning. And let's be sure and encourage uh, this work in every way that we can. When we think about the power of parables, and as we close this morning's lesson, we talked about the fact that parables are usually most informative, but they're also very blunt, and God is always honest in them. And because of that, it polarizes us. In other words, we find out real quick if we're with God on this or if we're apart from God on this. You know, and as we were walking out of Bible class, Donna mentioned 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter. Do you remember when David committed the the terrible sin of adultery and then turned around and tried to cover it up by having a man murdered in battle? And, And then what is almost just as bad as any of that, he had no remorse. He had no guilt. Now God's going to send Nathan to him. How's Nathan going to bring anything to the king's attention that would convict him if in fact he's not convicted at the moment? Let this sink in of a power of parables. How is it that he's going to reach a king who in the past had lived such a godly life to say, you really need to repent. We don't have time tonight to heavily develop this, but trusting you can go back on your own, or many of you will already know this. You remember in 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter, the Lord, verse 1, sent Nathan to David, and he began telling him about two men in one city. In verse 1, one was rich and one was poor. And then he told the story about when a rich 
man had a visitor to come to his house. He sent his servants over to get the one little pet lamb that literally ate off of the poor family's table. It was, it was their lamb that was the family pet. And the rich man had all these herds, had this one lamb slain so that he could feed his guests instead of going out and slaying one of the lambs out of his multiple, multiple uh, flocks. And David, when he heard this parable, he was so upset. Verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives... The man who has done this shall surely die. Then in verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Isn't that amazing how powerful a parable can be? All Nathan had to do was tell a parable and follow it up with these simple words. You are the man. When we talked about that this morning, I was reminded of reading earlier this, wor- this week Paul Butler's writing in College Press Commentary. I want to read to you just one uh, sentence here that he wrote. Parables have a way of stripping the human mind bare of all the bias and rationalization and laying it open to reality. Isn't it interesting sometimes how quickly we become fired up about earthly stories and when things are, are not as they should be in an earthly story. And sometimes we quickly jump to the defense of the one involved in that earthly story and then God is able to take that earthly story and say, if that fires you up, what about this spiritual message? And it leaves us bare. Do you realize that the teaching in Luke the, f- the 15th chapter, the chapter that, that many of us would say is one of our favorite chapters in the Bible. You have the lost sheep, you have the lost coin, and you have the lost son. Why is it that it, that is so powerful? Because many of us, if we lose one animal, one animal, we search for it until we find it. Many of us, if if we lost one-tenth of our possessions, one coin out of ten, if we lost one-tenth of our possessions, but we knew it was somewhere around, we would clean out everything to find that one. And all of us can, can identify, at least in heart, with the aspect of if we lost a son, we would definitely, if we knew there was a chance that he would come walking back down the road, we would definitely keep our eyes looking down the road. Now, isn't it interesting that in these three physical stories, that once Jesus with this parable reels us in, it's almost as if he's saying, why are sheep so important to you? Why are coins so important to you? Why is your physical family so important to you? And how do those three compare to your spiritual life, to your souls? I hope the day that you and I have spent together in studying the parables, 
has enriched our lives so that when we look at a parable from now on, we'll realize that God, in a sense, is trying to strip down, maybe thinking of where we've grown a little bit cold, maybe where we've grown a little bit callous, to make us think about something earthly that oftentimes stirs us up. And it's, it's kind of God's way of saying, I told you that so that you would be stirred up spiritually. And so tonight, let's look at a parable that is probably a parable that many of us are not just real familiar with this parable. Look with me, if you will, over to the book of Luke, and it's the 19th chapter, and we're going to pick up in a few moments looking in verse 11 at the parable. It's the parable of the Minas. And it is very similar in ways, or maybe I shouldn't say very, maybe I should just simply say similar. It's similar in ways to the parable of the talents. And sometimes when, when people read through it, their, their first thought is, maybe this is just another uh, edition, if you will, of, of the parable of the talents. And it, it's not that at all. It is a parable that stands completely on its own. And, and again, just to help us understand this one, but then also to, to look at it in a way, hopefully that'll help us be able to take this mindset as we study any parable. Anytime the scriptures gives us insight to why a parable is taught, that gives us tremendous enlightenment to probably what we are to learn from that parable. And again, I, I want us to take some time to see that tonight. Look with me, if you will, as we look in Luke, the 19th chapter, I want you to see in verse 11 when he says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another, another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Great insight there. But did you notice that he says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. In other words, Luke here is tying this all together. He's about to speak a parable, but Luke is introducing it saying, Jesus spoke this parable right here because what has just been said. We have three reasons that verse 11 tells us this parable is being spoken. Number one, because what has just been said. What has been said. Some of our, our youngest here probably know very well the story about a wee little man. A wee little man named Zacchaeus. And he climbed up in a tree. I sung that song so much when I was little, I really thought he was like a little three-inch character, you know. I, I don't think he was quite that much of a wee little man, but he was a shorter man in stature. And when you go back and look at the 19th chapter in verse 1, Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem. And keep in mind, this was a very, very important trip to Jerusalem because this would be the, once he arrives into Jerusalem and that Passover week begins, that would be at the end of that week that he would be crucified. You remember just last Sunday night or recently, I believe it was last Sunday night, we talked about how Jesus' fame and popularity was really on the increase in a tremendous way. That's what we see about Zacchaeus. He had heard that this great man Jesus was coming through his town and he was a rich man. He was a man with great power, but he wanted to see Jesus. So he climbs up into the sycamore tree because he had heard about Jesus. He wanted to learn more about Jesus. And as a matter of fact, we see something of great importance to what we're studying in this story. And that's in verse 2. He, notice at the latter part of the verse, who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Chief tax collector. Keep in mind. Many of the tax collectors were very wicked. Almost all of them, among other Jews, were very much hated. 
In other words, to call yourself a chief tax collector among other Jews, they would say, well, that means he's a chief sinner. They wouldn't have anything good to say about him. So we have a chief tax collector, bad reputation, very wealthy, little short man. He's heard about this great Jesus that's going to be traveling through his town, and he climbs up into a tree, and Jesus knows the heart of this man. Now Jesus goes and seeks out the man that is seeking him. Look there in verse 5. He, Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. It's the only time we know in the Scriptures that Jesus invited himself into someone else's house. And then when they did this in verse 7, but when they, keep in mind the word they there, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be with guests with a man who is a sinner. Who's the they? In this particular passage here, it does not identify to us who the they are, but we have a pretty good guess. It's probably many of the Jews, but especially the, the Pharisees, probably even Sadducees, and definitely the scribes. We don't have time right now, but it's not hard to do. If you want to make a mental note of it, go back and read the last part of Luke, the 14th chapter. You know, we just talked about Luke, the 15th chapter just a moment ago when Jesus told about the value of a soul by saying, look at the lost sheep, look at the lost coin, look at the lost son. If you would search for all of those, why don't you search for a soul? In other words, if you value these so much, why don't you value a soul even more? You know who Jesus was telling those three stories to? He was telling those stories to the scribes and the Pharisees, because at the end of the 14th chapter, he had just preached a powerful sermon. And at the end of that sermon, at that point, he had said to them, if anybody wants to hear more, draw near. And the scriptures tells us that it was the tax collectors and that it was the sinners that drew near to hear him. And the very next verse says the scribes and the Pharisees murmured and complained because they drew closer to Jesus. And so Jesus stops preaching to them for a minute and turns around and says... I need to tell you the value of a soul. Let me tell you about a lost sheep. Let me tell you about a lost coin. Let me tell you about a lost son. Now, why did he do that? I know this is it's kind of redundant, but, but stay with me. He did that because it convicted them. These men and women are hearing this. They just murmured about souls moving closer to Jesus, but yet every one of them would go search for a lost sheep. Every one of them would go search for a lost coin. Every one of them would keep their eyes open for a child that was coming home. And so those stories were convicting. If you do that for earthly things, wouldn't you do that for God and for God's children and for spiritual things? It's the same kind of language. They, they didn't like it when people that was outside of their comfort zone moved closer to hear Jesus. Zacchaeus, that wee little man up in the tree, He wasn't what they would want to set beside in their synagogue. They didn't want anything to do with people like that. Not they. And so Jesus ignores their complaints. And Zacchaeus makes a tremendous change. In verse 8, he is very sorry for what he has done. And we know that because he says in verse 8, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. I don't care how wealthy you are. You give away half you own, you're showing some real signs, a big change in your life. 
And we also see not only the generous spirit. Now keep in mind, as a tax collector, more than likely, he had been stealing from the poor. Now he says, I'm going to give to the poor. And I'm not giving a little bit. Here's a rich man. I'm giving half I own to the poor. So we see a change of heart. But then second, we see a penitent heart because he wants to make restitution. I have been stealing from the poor and anybody that I've stolen from. This is apparently separate and apart from the half he's giving away. Anything that I've stolen from the poor, I'm going to go back and I'm going to restore what I stole from them four times over. Jesus, can you imagine the joy that Jesus has in his heart? A soul is turning from sin and wickedness and turning to to God and to righteousness. And it's in that setting that we read verse 9. And keep in mind, this 9 and 10 is going to be that transition that gets us over into this next parable. Jesus said to him, verse 9 and 10, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Can you imagine how their eyes must have have lightened up and and been kind of a little bit surprised? What? He's going to talk to this man about salvation? And what? He's going to talk about his task on earth, Jesus' task on earth, is to seek and to save the lost? Because keep in mind, at this point, there was still a lot of people that were, they were thinking that Jesus' mission on this earth was not about souls. It was about an earthly kingdom. So reason number one, we just went over. He spoke this parable because every time he would concentrate on souls, they would seem to be shocked. Reason number two, it tells us there in verse 11, and because he was near Jerusalem... We have to understand the broader text that we've already mentioned. And that is, in other words, he was traveling on his way to Jerusalem. Jericho's not that far out of Jerusalem. And what's going to happen when he gets into Jerusalem? He's going to begin his last week on this earth. He has a few more days to teach. And then he is going to be crucified. That's another way of you and I saying, we're about to run out of time. In other words, while Jesus was on this earth, he was continually trying to help people grow closer to God. And he's literally now going to teach them this parable because they still have a misunderstanding about what is most important. And he realizes, I'm about to run out of time. I'm about to enter Jerusalem. I don't have many more days to teach. There's a third reason why he taught this parable. Notice the last part of verse 11. He uses because again. And because they thought, they thought, that's their reasoning, the kingdom of God would appear immediately. The word appear here. It is a very strong word for an immediate appearance. Even, and I'm talking about in the original language. Just mull this over a little bit in your mind. Why did he speak this parable? Because they thought that the kingdom of heaven would immediately appear before them. What were they looking for? We know they wanted deliverance from Rome. We know that they wanted a kingdom that was like David's kingdom where it would be the greatest power on earth. What did they think Jesus was going to do? Some way they believed that this great... Now keep in mind, he was a miracle worker. This great miracle worker. 
This man that could shut a rabbi's mouth just like that when he wanted to argue. This man that can move thousands of people out into the wilderness to hear him speak. Friends, when I start to wrap my mind around how powerful Jesus had become in many individuals' minds from an earthly standpoint on the earth during this time, it is interesting then to tie that into their thought. Some way, we're going to wake up one morning and this Jesus of Nazareth, he is going to be on some kind of throne that just immediately appeared and we are going to reign over Rome. Jesus tells a parable. And in this parable, what is interesting is he doesn't necessarily address that directly, even though he's saying there, this is the reason I'm telling it. But he does teach them in this parable an earthly story to say, I want you to gain a spiritual meaning out of this, that if you'll do it faithfully, you'll have the answers you need to make this transition into that new kingdom that I'm bringing about. Now, you remember that new kingdom that he was bringing about started 50 days after the weekend of his crucifixion, and it was the beginning of the church on this earth, which was the kingdom. So what's the parable going to be? As you know, for time's sake, we've got a long parable here, so we can't even get close to developing all of this tonight. It goes now from the 12th verse to the 27th verse, but I believe we can get the main message, and I believe we can get a lot from this study of God's Word. Verse 12 We need to understand the characters involved. We have a certain nobleman that's going to go into a far country and receive for himself a kingdom and return. So what he does in 13 is we see another set of characters. We have 10 of his servants that are going to be called together and he's going to give each of them a mina. And and each one is going to receive the same amount. And see, that's different from the parable of the talents where one received one, one, two, and another one received five. But each one of these is going to receive the same amount, and there's ten of them. Now, we also are introduced to another uh, set of characters, and that is in verse 14. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, By the way, secular history would record right here an event that took place just prior to this that would make this story very real in their mind. I don't believe by any stretch of the imagination Jesus is using this, this, um, he, he is telling this exact story. I don't think he's doing that. He's just telling a story that they would be able to identify with because they had seen it previously in their lifetime. And remember, that's what we've talked about in Bible classes. That's what we've talked about this morning is that parables were earthly stories that they could identify with. In other words, they had seen things like this. So when they heard the story, they'd be like, yes. I've seen a man go out and sow seed. Yes, I've seen men bring nets uh, full of fish in. Well, you know what else they had seen? They had seen men upset with the rain over them in Rome. You see, when the great Herod the Great passed away, he left to his sons certain areas to reign over. And the one that was left to reign over their area, there were many of the Jews that absolutely did not like his leadership. They gathered a delegation of leaders of the Jews to travel all the way to Rome to tell Augustus that they did not like this man reigning over them. He evaluated it and he set this same man up as the tetrarch of their province, including Samaria and Judea. Well, you can imagine when they got home, what happened? The people, the citizens that had been faithful to him, they were blessed and were prospered. And the citizens that had been un, 
what he thought was unfaithful. They had opposed his reign, his leadership. They were punished harshly. So the idea of there being citizens that say to one in charge, I don't want to follow you. The Jews knew that story very well. They probably would have had relatives not too many generations back that had gone through that very same thing. So this is a story they could understand. A nobleman, he's going to go away. He's going to receive a kingdom. But while he's gone, he has a lot of investments that need to be taken care of. He gives 10 individuals the very same amount of money. And by the way, this amount of money is so small compared to that of talents. Some have said a talent could be worth as much as $30,000. But what we're talking about here is oftentimes also translated a pound. In other words, it might be the equivalent of $25 or $30. So the story that's being told here is not, if God gave you something huge, would you use it in his service? The story here is, if God gave you something as small as $30 and asked you to take care of it, would you use it in his service? You'll see a little bit later of how important it is that we take care of the smaller things in life that God gives us. And so what he does is he goes and and when he returns back home in verse 15, he commands the servants to come and to give him a report and to give the money that they have gained. In verse 16, the first one comes back and says, I have earned 10 minas. Wow. Wouldn't you like to have this guy doing your investing for you? Uh, you know, he was given one and he gained 10 times a return. You know, uh, you know, a lot today are saying, if I could just get 5 or 6% return. And, and he's literally getting 10 times the, the return. Uh, I guess that would be, what, a 1,000% return? Whatever you finance guys are. I've been out of it too long. All right, in verse 17, uh, we have the other one. Or, or verse 17, this guy's rewarded. He says, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in, in a very little And now notice, you will have authority over 10 cities. Wow. Does God really bless individuals that are faithful in such a magnificent way? I've given you $30 to take care of. And you have brought me back $300. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you 10 cities that I need someone to take care of those. Can you take care of 10 cities? Wow. Isn't it wonderful? This story that's just supposed to help us to understand the spiritual teachings. And then we have in verse 18, the second man comes and and he's only earned five. But still, that's still a 500% increase. And, And the Lord doesn't, you know, criticize him because he didn't do as well as the other. He was very faithful. And, and it shows us that God is not judging us on a comparison that in the sense that we're all created exactly the same. We don't all have the same abilities. We're not all going to bring back the same returns in the same exact areas. What God is looking for is faithfulness. Faithfulness. How am I faithfully using what he has given me? And so this man receives the, the uh, reward of being told it's well done. And also he's given five cities. But notice in 20, then another came. And, and he's saying, and by the way, lest I forget to mention, we only have a report from three. He doesn't go back through all ten, but he gives us an idea of what two that were very faithful. And then he goes to one that wasn't faithful. And 20 says, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. Well, is your first thought, well, that was good. He kept it safe. Notice his answer here. I feared you because you are an austere man. 
You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now pause there for just a moment. You realize that just because something is written in the Bible, if it is a quote what someone else has said, it does not mean that it's true. Does that make sense? The Bible is truth in what is uh, reported, is, is, is true in that sense. But just because a person says something in the Bible does not mean what they're saying is true. That's exactly what we're reading here. This man has been unfaithful, but he feels like he has to give a reason. So he says, I tell you, Mr. Nobleman, why I didn't go out and do anything with your money. I was afraid of you. And I knew that you deposit and you want to reap where you don't deposit. I know that you want, to, you want to harvest where you've not sown anything. Friends, you name one place where God reaps what He has not sown. You name one place where, where He makes a withdrawal where He has not made any kind of deposits. The nobleman here in this story is most wise because he, he doesn't try to argue with him about his lies here. He just simply says, okay, if you want to tell a lie, let's judge you based on the lie that you're telling. Notice what he does. It's really wise. In 22, he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you. See, that's what he's saying there. Okay, I will let you, the lie that you just told, I'll let that judge you. And here's what he says, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. So he's just repeating it back. If you knew that, if you knew that's who I was, why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Isn't that crafty? Isn't that wise? Okay, if you knew I was such a hard guy, in other words, what he's saying is, if you were telling the truth right now, if you really thought I was that kind of man... Right when I shot out of town, you would have run around to banks and said, listen, I'm dealing with a guy that's unfair. I've got to have some kind of dividend. Hey, banker, how much will you give me if I give you this? How much will you give me? I've got to find the best place. You see what the point was? He didn't fear the nobleman at all. He didn't try to do what was best at all. You know what he did? He took what the nobleman gave him and he wrapped a handkerchief, he wrapped a napkin around it and when the guy returned and everybody else had done so well, he said, hmm, I guess I have to bring mine out. I wonder now what I'm going to say because I don't have anything good to say. Well, what is our human nature? When we're wrong, what is our human nature? Our human nature is when I'm wrong, I'm going to blame you. This man is 100% in the wrong. He blames God. He blames the nobleman. Isn't that sad that that's our human nature? We've got to live beyond that. We've got to grow beyond that. We've got to become spiritual, not carnal. And so the nobleman sees right through this. And in verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, Master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you, that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And now we go back to the citizens that were back in verse 14. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them 
before me. Before we close out with that, I just want to ask you, do you have a handkerchief that you keep the things in that God gives you? Maybe your handkerchief is your career. Well, you know, if I just had more time, I would take the abilities that God gives me and I'd use them in the work of the church. But hey, the only place I can use them now is at the workplace. I just don't have time. You see, that's my handkerchief. Now, if God ever calls me on it, I'm going to blame Him for it because He's not fair. What's your handkerchief? Is your handkerchief your hobbies? Well, you know, when you go out and make a living, you've got to have some time to, to let your hair down and relax. And I don't have time to make a living and do my hobbies and do the work of the church. These are my handkerchiefs. And if anybody tries to call me on it, I'm going to blame them or I'm going to blame God. Maybe it's just indifference or apathy. My handkerchief is, you want to know the truth? I just don't care. I like the church, but I don't really love her. I'm not going to sacrifice for her. I'm not going to stop doing what I want to do in order to see the church prosper. I've got this handkerchief of apathy. And whatever the abilities and resources God gives me, I just put them in that handkerchief. It could be hundreds of things. That's our handkerchief. We can blame family. We can use good things that God gives us. We can use bad things that, that Satan would tempt us with to all become that handkerchief to cover up what we ought to be doing instead. But did you notice in this story, we really come away with three sets of characters other than the nobleman. We have part of the ones that have said they want to be his servants that did so faithful. No excuses. They serve faithfully. Then we have the one that he didn't serve faithfully. Then we have the the characters that are a part of the citizenship. And they didn't want him to reign over them at all. And when it's all said and done, there's only one that comes out ahead. And it's the one that says, Lord, I want to be your servant. And we take what God has given us and we put it to work. I want to ask you for just a moment something that probably is the hardest question out of all this we've studied. How in the world does that tie into the three reasons that Jesus said through Luke that this parable was written? Remember number one, Jesus' work is to seek and save the lost. Friends, God gives us resources so that we can use them in whatever we can to seek and save the lost. And if we're not not constantly concerned about souls. I can't think that I'm going to come out as one of those faithful stewards. We're not all going to be teachers and preachers, but everybody in this place can pray for the Hispanic work that's beginning and pray fervently. Everybody can be looking for contacts. The question is, are we going to be a servant that lines up with our Lord that says, I want to seek and save the lost? And then the second reason he told this, he says... My time is short. I'm about to go to Jerusalem. You know, I don't know how much time I have on this earth. But I know that today and tomorrow and whatever my last day on this earth is, I want to use what God has given me in His service. And then the third thing that He said there in in verse 11 is that you've got a misunderstanding. He's talking to these people. He says, you think there's going to be some kind of earthly kingdom that just pops up. 
course, the Lord was establishing a spiritual kingdom that was just down the road, not too far off in the future. And that's what we talked about this morning, is making sure that we always see things from a spiritual perspective, not from just a physical perspective. Tonight, the parables, they help us focus on things that are so important. They help us remind ourselves of what really is important. Because when we think about an earthly story like that, it'd be real easy for all of us to say, well, I want to be one of those good servants. I I want to be given ten cities to look over. Friends, the Lord says then, be faithful in the small things. What has He given you that's small? Be faithful in it.